I'd invite you to take your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter 23 with me. Again, that's page 882, if you're using a pew Bible. I read an article this week on the internet. It said, the 10 most important decisions that you'll ever make in your life. Number 10, choose to get a dog. I'm sorry to my wife because we have a cat. How many of you have cats? We're praying for you. (laughs) Number nine, choose to save and give money. Number eight, I didn't hear any amens on that, by the way. (laughs) Choose to eat healthily. Nah. (laughs) Number seven, choose (laughs) choose to exercise every day. Number six, I'm into, read a book every day, right? Number five, choose to get excited every day. Choose to have a career that you love. Number three, choose the right partner. Number two, choose the right friends. And number one, choose to love yourself. Hmm. I have a new number one for you. Choose who will be king of your life. Because that answer covers all the other ones. Did you know that? Choose your king. It's a running theme throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve were created, but they won't, we weren't created robots. They had the ability to make choices, and they chose to have Satan as their king instead of God. Not learning from that mistake and that sinful choice, Israel had a choice between Saul as king and David who was after God's own heart. Luke's gospel from the very beginning to the very end is a story about God's people and the people of the world choosing who will be their king. And the choices have always been different. It's Jesus or Herod. Later on in the gospel at the end in the book of Acts as well, it's Jesus and Caesar But we all have to make choices. That's what happened on Easter. On Good Friday, Jesus was crucified in the middle between two criminals. It was a place called in the Greek Calvary. In the Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. Uh, Both of them mean the place of the skull. It was the place of death. It was a hill right outside the city gates on a very, very main thoroughfare and busy highway. Jesus, on top of his cross... There was what was called in Latin a titulus, which means a sign. And the message was king of the Jews. I find it very ironic that the king of the world was crucified between two insurrectionists. That's what they were. They weren't common criminals. I think the translation of the Bible sometimes is a little misleading when it says thief because they were revolutionaries. They were against Rome. They had probably killed a Roman soldier, and it was capital punishment. Jesus himself was being crucified, according to the Romans, for the same thing. These men were not small-time thieves stealing things. They were criminals who threatened the empire. And that's why that day they were receiving what was called in Latin again the supreme penalty, or the summum supplicium. It was the number one penalty. And the reason why people were crucified is Rome wanted to communicate a message. They wanted to tell people, if you dare defy the empire, 
crucifixion, this is what happens to you. And so when you were crucified, it was considered by people in that day. That's why the gospel doesn't give a lot of description to the physical suffering of Jesus because everybody regularly saw people crucified. In fact, the Romans had 6,000 Jewish people crucified along the same road for miles at one point. The Jews knew about crucifixion. They knew its horrors. They knew it was the most brutal, cruel, inhuman, public, prolonged torture there was. You and I are not familiar with it as much. When you were crucified, you were flogged, or what they would call scourged first. Two professional scourgers would be on your, one on each side. You'd be tied to a post, usually with at least your wrist, if not your ankles. Or you were chained there, and they would have a cat of nine tails. It was a more like a whip with nine strands embedded with cut glass and rock. And one would come from one side and they would come and the, the nine pieces of leather would come across your back and around your stomach and then they would hesitate for a moment so that locked into your skin and then they would pull it back. And that would happen one after another. The Jews had a rule, 39 was as most you get, 39 seems crazy. Romans had no rule like that. It could be 40 or more. Jesus was scourged so bad that Isaiah says you could hardly tell who he was. Not to mention that he was slapped, hit with a fist in the face, beaten with rods, crowned a thorn on his head, and then he was compelled to bear his crossbeam, which probably weighed upwards of 80 to 100 pounds, all the way through the narrow streets and their turns, all the way outside the city to the hill of Golgotha. He would have been laid on the cross beam that was laid there for him. He had been crucified through his wrists, not his hands. But this was considered part of your hands here because on the cross, in order to breathe, you would have to grab those nails. You would push off. Your right foot would be on top of your left at an angle and a nail would be stripped right through the top and all the way through the bottom of your other foot because it was how you pushed. You would sit on a little wooden seat that was fastened to the beam called a sedile. And you would push as you hold up and you would push off your feet and get some leverage off the little seat that you were on while you were completely naked in public and the humiliation on a main thoroughfare. And that's why you would pull up just so that you could breathe and you wouldn't suffocate. Jesus and all the thieves have only small little sentences on the cross because you didn't talk a lot because you had to do everything you could just to breathe. And many times when you were dropped into the hole, your bones would come out of joint and it was the most barbaric, painful thing there possibly was. And as we think about the two thieves who are crucified with Jesus, not only their own plight, but looking at Jesus, see, that story in the gospel, that passage, puts you and I in the exact same position as those two rebels. See, we have to today, in our mind's eye, as we hear the story related from Scripture, we behold Jesus on the cross as well. And as they had to on that day, they are searching for the meaning of what his cross was about. They're searching for an answer to a question that now for you and I in the 21st century is 2,000 years old. And that question is, is Jesus a king with a kingdom? Like Adam and Eve, like Israel, like the two rebels, we must choose. And do not think because one received and one rejected that only one chose a king that day. They both did. They both did. The one chose Jesus and, the, and God's rule in his life, and the other chose himself and self-rule in his life. Over all the centuries, 
Choosing who you will have as king of your life has changed. It's been between God and false gods. It's between Jesus and Herod, Jesus and Caesar. But we fast forward to the 21st century, and all we've done is sophisticate the change. And now we choose today between Jesus and money, and Jesus and sex, and Jesus and power and pleasure, and Jesus and fame and fortune and success and all the things that go with it. And the question that you and I have to answer today that Easter poses to us as like the thieves, you and I look at Jesus on the cross, we must ask, who really rules your life? Is your life marked by God rule or self rule? Who really, honestly, who really governs your choices? One rebel, the rebel on Jesus' side, saw him as a possible power to escape the cross. See, that one thief saw Jesus as someone who had the ability to deliver him from his present problems. He says in verse 39, if you look at it in the text, he mocks and joins everybody else and says, are you not the Christ? And think of Christ as king because it means anointed one. Are you the Messiah? Are you really the king? Here's what he says. And if so, prove it to us. Do it this way. Save yourself and, of course, then save us. See, most people in our world, and I would say, unfortunately, some even here today, most people don't see Jesus as a king with the kingdom. They see him as a person with a power. That's how most people see him, a power to perhaps save their marriage. And maybe you came to church today, um, not only because it's Easter, but you thought, hey, why not give it a try? You know, there's some things going on in my life, maybe desperately wrong. And maybe Jesus has some of the power that they say he has. And if he does, maybe he could save my marriage. Maybe he could save my job. Perhaps Jesus could save my finances so I don't have to be totally ruined financially. Maybe Jesus could save that loved one of mine from that sickness or that disease or that issue that they face. The problem is, is that when you see Jesus as a person with power and not a king with the kingdom, see, when he doesn't act like the king you want him to, and he doesn't exhibit and express and use his power the way that you would like him to, people like this lestai, this insurrectionist, they reject him. See, these two types of rebels, there are two types of rebels. The one that I've been talking about who really doesn't want to surrender Jesus' rules, he really wants Jesus just to do something for him. And the reason is, is because he's still an insurrectionist in his heart. He doesn't want Jesus to rule his life. He would like him to rule his problems, though. He would like Jesus not to come in and to save him from the consequences of his sins, but rather the consequences of his situation. He doesn't want Jesus to rule over his life, just to rule out his problems. Do you remember the Indiana Jones movie where the knight of the guardian of the Holy Grail, and they go in this room and the German guy And they have all of these holy grails, supposedly the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, and there's tons of them laying around. And you can have eternal life if you pick the right one. So the German guy picks up the one, he looks at all these ones, and he picks up the gold one. It's jewel-studded. It's beautiful. And he dips it in the water, and then he drinks it. You remember what happens? Oh, he just disintegrates into a pile of dust. Right? And then the guardian says, well, this is profound, right? He chose foolishly. (laughs) That's an understatement, right? 
Then Indiana Jones goes and looks at all the same, you know, and what does he choose? He chooses the one that has no glitter, no gold, no jewels. The one that's just a piece of wood, pretty much. And he picks it, and it's the right one, and he says he has chosen wisely. You know, I think sometimes when it comes to what we think of Jesus and who he is, we want the gold and the jewel-studded cup, don't we? We want to think that Jesus is all that. And see, he's going to do this for me, and he's going to give me this. And he's going, wow, I pray, and he's going to answer. And we see him, not as a king with the kingdom, but really a person with power. But can I tell you this morning, if you see Jesus, and this is what the thief I want to concentrate on, if, if you see Jesus for who he really is, and by the way, it matters to him. Look at the text. It matters to Jesus what you think of him. The first guy didn't really care about if Jesus was king or he wasn't king. All Jesus, he wanted to know about Jesus is, can you drive the getaway car? I mean, can you get us off the cross and get us out of here? Really? But to, it matters to Jesus what you think of him. In fact, I would go so far to say, is he brought you here this morning because he wants you to be clear about who he is and what that means for what he's done. And the Bible says in our text in verse 40, But the other one, listen to this, rebuked him. Just stop there for a minute. See, if you're going to come to Jesus today and you're going to see him as a king with a kingdom, here's what's going to have to be true of your life. You're not going to be able to go along with everybody else. You see, the same guy, the other thief on the other cross, the other insurrectionist, right? He is mocking Jesus. He doesn't think that Jesus is who he is. And it would be easy if you were on the cross too for the same crime. Wouldn't it be easy just to join in with him and mock Jesus too? He doesn't do that. He didn't get sucked in with everyone else around the cross. And I read the verses right before our text. The religious leaders are saying this. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, let him come down from that cross. Verse 35. So you got all the religious leaders he could have joined in. The Roman soldiers are all there. The Roman soldiers in verse 36 also mock him. They give him sour wine and they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. So put it together. Every person around the cross, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the other guy that you're in cahoots with and why you're on the cross and why why you're there today, even he's mocking Jesus. Everyone is mocking Jesus. Except this one guy. Can I tell you this? If you come to Jesus and give him your life and admit and surrender that he's king with the kingdom, can I tell you this? You may be alone. Today, 21st century, we also have insurrectionists. See, we are surrounded by atheists and people say there is no God. We are surrounded by people who are scientists and say you need no faith because if you can't objectively prove it, then it's not worth having. And then we also have not only the atheists and the scientists, but you have the religionists today. The religionists say that there is no truth, that it's all relative, that you can make it whatever you want it to be. If Jesus works for you, great. But listen, Buddha or Muhammad works for me. See, we have insurrections and all around us today, all around us, are people who do not believe and people who mock Jesus. But if you would choose him as king, you maybe have to be on your own. You may have to realize that all the talk around you is deceptive talk. For you to choose Jesus, 
you're going to have to ignore the people who say, if Jesus, you're such a great king, then why did the Amish girls get shot in that little schoolroom? If you're such a great king, why did entire villages in Syria get massacred? If you're such a great king, then why did 16 men get buried in a mine? But instead, here's what he says, instead of mocking Jesus, listen to his words, when everyone else is contrary to what he sees. He says, do you not fear God? You see what he says? Do you not fear God seeing that you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He says, we've justly received for our rewards. See, this is what we've done. We're getting what we deserve, he would say. See, for you to see Jesus as a king with a kingdom and surrender your life to him, you're going to have to come to this conclusion that you are the one that's wrong. Everyone else around you is mocking Jesus because they think he's wrong and they're right. You'll have to be different than that. See, he came to the place in his life where he had no more desire to save face anymore. He really didn't care what anyone else said. No more trying to pretend that he was better than he really was. Ever been there? No more trying to hide his guilt behind a self-righteous facade. He gave it all up on that day. He took off the mask. You ever long for that in your heart? You really long to ever say to people, you know what, I pretend to be this, but this isn't really who I am. Oh, I, I want people to think I'm cool and I'm all that. But I have this guilt inside. If you only know the things that have been done to me and the things that I have done, you'd know who I really was. But for him, he took off the mask that day. No more fake religiosity. No more dichotomy between his public life and his private life. No more trying to push out and hide all the guilt and shame from what he had done that nobody else knows about. No more trying to drown out the depth of depression and despair that he's tried to to suffocate with alcohol and sex and drugs. He had to come to an end of himself. That is his self-rule. And he did on that day. Perhaps God brought you here today because that's where he wants to bring you to. See, coming to the cross of Jesus is coming to the end of your self-rule and maybe sin rule in your life as well. Accepting that the reason that you are where you are today is not because of other people per se, as much as you have sinned against God. And on the cross, in that moment, the thief perhaps for the first time in his life realized this, I am not only an insurrectionist against Rome, I am an insurrectionist against God. And he is right next to me being punished on the cross. See, the first rebel didn't care about any of that. But this rebel, he figured out who Jesus really was. Because the text tells us, did you see it? Not only does he realize that he is wrong, listen, but despite, despite what everybody else is thinking and saying, He thinks this, Jesus is right. In the text, in verse 41, he says, but this man, in contrast to us, we're getting what we deserve. But look at this man, look at him. In the throes of his pain and suffering, with the guy is pulling himself up on nails, barely breathing. Here he has time to look at Jesus. It's the turning point of his life. 
And it says this in the text. He's done nothing wrong. And the word nothing wrong is the word atapos. It means nothing out of place. I mean, he looks at his own life. It's like a big puzzle. And he says, there are things in my life that should not be there. There are things that should be and are not there. It's like this gigantic puzzle and there are pieces missing. And the ones I have don't fit together. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, he would say nothing was in place in his life. And maybe you came here today, and maybe that's why you're here. Maybe someone invited you, a friend. You came with family members. I don't know why you're here, but here's the reality for some. You look at your life. Pastor Walker, it's out of place. The puzzle isn't fitting together. There are things that should not be in my life, but they are, and they have been. In fact, the honest truth is, I keep holding on to them. There are things that should be in my life that are not here in my life, but they're not. And this man had to come to the realization that in his life, everything was out of place. But in Jesus' life, nothing was out of place. Absolutely nothing. Here's a man who rebelled against Rome Rome and God. Here's Jesus submitting and surrendering to Rome and God. Jesus was the opposite of whatever he was. Is that you and me? It is. It is. Sin has displaced us. It has messed up all the puzzle pieces of our lives. And the only thing, can I say it again? The only thing that you and I can do recognizing that we cannot save ourselves is to look at him, is to see him. He is a king with a kingdom. I always thought to myself, I don't know how this guy looked at him and see him, saw him in the condition he was in from head to toe. He looked horrible. I mean, he is going to say in the next verse, And commit his life to Jesus and surrender him. Listen, he's going to say, I believe you're a king with a kingdom. And he's talking to a guy, namely Jesus, who can't even move his own hands and feet. I mean, Jesus is nailed, can I say it reverently, like an insect. He is. He's nailed to the tree. And he's saying, Jesus, listen, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Everybody else thinks you're a phony, a fake, not me. I believe you're a king with a kingdom. How could he say that? How could in the world could he believe it? It goes against everything that you are seeing. He did because he saw beyond the cross and Jesus on the cross to Jesus on the throne. And in one way, the throne was the cross for Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me. Do you know there are only two times in Luke's gospel where Jesus, someone else uses direct address to talk to Jesus, meaning they say his name Jesus first? The one is the lepers in chapter 17. The other is the blind men outside of Jericho in chapter 18. And in both instances, calling Jesus' name, they both say, have mercy on me. I want you to think this. This man sees his own sin, and then he looks at Jesus without sin. And when he looks to Jesus and says his name, Jesus, here's what he's asking for. Please have mercy on me. I'm getting what I deserve. You are not. 
have mercy on me. And then he says, Jesus, remember me. You know, after the flood, the Bible says in Genesis 8-1, and God remembered Noah. Do you know Samson, when he was dying, even though he had sinned and his hair was shortened and his eyes had been plucked out, he stood between the two pillars and here's what Samson cried out in his last prayer. Lord, remember me and give me strength one more time. Do you know Hannah couldn't have children in 1 Samuel and she begged God for years and years and years and then finally in answer to her prayer, God gives her a little boy, Samuel, who would be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And the description of this event, the Bible says, and the Lord remembered Hannah. Nehemiah prays three times in the last chapter of his book as he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Here's what he prays. Lord, remember me. Remember me. Every time in the Old Testament, God remembers someone. They ask God to remember them. Here's what it is. It's not they're saying, God, don't forgive me. That's not it. Don't forget me. That's not what you're trying to say. Here's what it is. God, remember me. Help me. Have mercy on me. Come into my life and do for me which only you can do. See, that's what God wants you to get. That's where he wants to bring you today. As you acknowledge him as a king with the kingdom, he wants you to say this, and here's the only thing I can do. As I look at my sin and his perfection, I need mercy. I need mercy. I don't have the power. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. I can't be good enough on my own. It's not about my church membership. It's not about my denominational affiliation. It's not whether I've been baptized. It's not whether I try to be good or more than I am bad. It's not any of those things. What you need is mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what he's saying? You're a king with a kingdom. He's saying this, you're not just the king. You are my king. It's gotten personal. See, Jesus came here on this world to die for our sins. And he brought you here today because he wants you to surrender to him so that he can be your king. Jesus' answer in verse 43 is beautiful. He says this. Today, actually first he says truly, and the word is amen. You know, we say that in church, amen. Go ahead and say it. I like that. You know what it means? So let it be. I'm right with you. It's done. This guy says, not your typical sinner's prayer, Lord, remember me when you, come in, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, amen, I will. Amen. Listen, this guy couldn't get off the cross and do good works. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't run down to the local synagogue and start going to church. He couldn't do the sacraments. He, he couldn't do anything but die because he didn't need to. And Jesus says, amen, amen, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, today is a big word in the gospel of Luke. Do you remember when Jesus was at Zacchaeus' house in Jericho and he comes down the city and everyone thinks he's going to spend the day with all the religious leaders and all the hubbub there and he stops at the sycamore tree and there's the tax collector, the chief tax collector, the despised social outcast of the community and he says, Zacchaeus, by name, he goes, come down for today. I must stay at your house. 
And then he brackets it at the end, and he comes out of Zacchaeus' house with him. And here's what happens. He says, today salvation has come to your house. Today. You know why? Because when Jesus says today, he changes people's lives. And then, you know, I want you to know that these words that Jesus spoke to a criminal on a cross are not relegated to 2,000 years previous. Oh, no. Therefore, today, today. And if you would come today and you see Jesus for who he really is, he's a king with a kingdom, and you would say, I admit that, I confess that, I believe that, and you would surrender your life to him and ask in mercy for his forgiveness, you know what his response to you would be? Amen. Amen. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I wrote it in my notes. It takes a resurrectionist to save an insurrectionist. And it does. There is no one in this room, no one in this room that is too rebellious for the grace of God. It doesn't matter what your sin, no matter what form your insurrection has taken, the resurrection of Jesus, his cross, death, and resurrection is more than capable of forgiving it all. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Do you know, for that criminal on the cross, I bet for years no one wanted to be with him. No one. Only sinners like him. The religious leaders didn't want to be with him. His own family probably didn't want to be with him. And he probably had very few friends, if any, who wanted to be with him. And now here is Jesus who has nothing out of place. The true king, and here's what he says. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. Oh, not just for today, but for all eternity in paradise. Can I tell you, that's what Jesus offers at Easter if you choose to have him as your king. So let me ask you one more time. Who really rules your heart and life? It could be today completely different if you choose Jesus as your king. Let's pray. There's an old hymn in the hymn book, Lead Me to Calvary, the first verse I love. It says this, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Oh, that was my prayer this week, that this sermon would lead some to Calvary. It leads you to the cross and lead you away from your self-rule to God's rule through Jesus Christ. May I say it kindly, whether you recognize it or not today, he is the king. He is the king. And he's alive, and that proves it. But it would be far better if you received it today by faith. But to do it, you'll have to maybe go against what everybody else believes and thinks. You'll have to admit that he's right and you're wrong. You're going to have to admit that despite what it may look like on Easter, he really is the king. And you'll have to say this, and I want you to take over all of my life. All of it. See, that's the choice you have today. That's why God brought you here.
He wants to say, today, you can be with me in paradise. But you have to surrender all. I surrender all. All to him I freely give. Will you do that today with every head bowed and every eye closed? Would there be some here today, in the quietness of this moment, you'd say, Pastor Walker, I know about Jesus. But I've never acknowledged him, confessed him, believed that he is the king. My king. But today, I want to cry out for mercy. I want to repent of all my sins and ask you to take over all the choices of my life and rule in my heart and life and everything. I've never done that, but today I, I know I desperately need to. I need to by his grace. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you as we close today? All over the auditorium, in the main floor, balcony. Pastor Walker, I need Jesus Christ. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you in the balcony. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? You can put your hands down. Thank you, sir, on my left. Anyone else? I, I, I need Jesus. Self-rule has devastated me. And if it hasn't, it will. I want God rule in my life. I want Jesus to be king. I believe he died for my sins and rose again for my justification. And I, I want him to be Lord of my life. If you raised your hand a few moments ago, or even if you didn't, we're going to sing a song as we close our service. There's nothing magical about the song. There's nothing magical about coming down the aisle. It just gives us an opportunity to have someone take the scriptures and show you how Jesus can take over your life, forgive your sins, and be king of everything that you are. Would you give us that opportunity? We're going to sing, and as soon as we sing, don't hesitate, just walk right down the aisle. And we'll have people ready here, our pastors and others, who can take a few moments of your time and show you how you can have life in his name. Father, you've seen hands, and as I say so often, you've also seen hearts. You know for those who raised their hand and others who didn't, they still need you desperately. Father, we have to come to the end of ourselves, and only you can bring that to bear in people's lives. Only you can bring godly sorrow. Only you can bring repentance. Only you can regenerate. So we pray in this moment that you would allow the Holy Spirit to do his work through the word of God and that you bring many to have their hearts receptive and open to have Jesus be the king of their life. Change them forever for your honor and glory alone. We ask for Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.